People of Earth, attention. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions, so this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. My name is Connor Heaney and I am the Collections Manager with the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Today we are going to speak about the 1956 sci-fi classic Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, directed by Fred F. Sears and starring Hugh Marlowe, Joan Taylor and Donald Curtis. Technical effects, of course, were created by Ray Harryhausen. Now before we begin, I'm going to run through the original 1956 synopsis for the movie. Sightings of flying saucers are increasing around the globe. They are discovered to be craft of a peaceful race with technology far beyond ours who are fleeing from a dying planet. In the US, a saucer lands at a military base, only to be greeted by hostile gunfire. Declaring war on the entire planet, the aliens demonstrate their strength by using death rays and by launching large-scale attack on Earth with their fleet of flying saucers. Working in their underground rocket base, space scientist Dr. Marvin Russell and his new wife Carol examine the body of a captured alien and discover that the creatures and their saucers are sensitive to high-frequency sound. They develop a machine that emits a beam that can be aimed at the saucers, and during the final battle in Washington DC, they disable the saucers, making them crash spectacularly into various Washington landmarks and so save the Earth. Now, unbelievably, this film is celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, and so to celebrate the fact, I am joined once more by Foundation Trustee John Walsh. John, how are you? I'm good, Connor. It's, um, it's good to be here and it's great to be talking about an anniversary. Yes, fantastic. I mean, 60th anniversary. So you didn't see the premiere of this film or anything. You weren't around in the in the 1950s when this one came out. No, I wasn't. You know, um, but you know, the interesting thing this is the um, this is you know Ray um, had made Beast on Twenty Thousand Fathoms before this in '53 for Warner Brothers, um, but this was the second of his Sony black and white sci-fi trilogy. So it kind of starts with It Came From Beneath the Sea, which is the octopus film in 1955, and finishes off in 1957 with 20 million miles to Earth. So Earth versus the Flying Saucers slapped right bang in the middle of that trio of black and white Sony sci-fi films that raided. Everything else thereafter went colour for Seventh Voyage of Sinbad in 1958 onwards. So it's it's right in the centre of... Ray's work with science fiction and Ray's work with Sony at that period, but also science fiction of the era as well, because there was lots of films being made on a low budget in black and white because it was a higher cost in the laboratory to, to film in colour. 
And for Ray, there were some technical implications, which we'll get onto in a moment. But, um, you know, there were, f- there were other films around that era, like The Thing from Another World, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which was very low budget. And then the big budget ones, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Robert Wise's film about a, an alien invasion in, in the heart of, of the capital. And, and War of the Worlds, of course, George Powell's Technicolored um, Flying Sources on Strings, effectively, which won the special effects Oscar. Um, so it really was a time of heightened paranoia because of issues of the Cold War. But the studios were very interested in how can you tell the flying saucer story in a new and exciting way? So it might depend on new monsters or, in this case, quite revolutionary special effects. Um, and even today, this film holds up spectacularly well, doesn't it, Connor? I think you're right. I think it's true to say Ray didn't invent flying saucer films, but he certainly perfected them with this movie because it really is the cream of the crop in terms of these 1950s invasion films. And it very much is a film of its era. I think uh, it's interesting to note that this was the final film that Ray did that was set in contemporary America at the time. All his films thereafter 20 Million Miles to Earth was was set in Italy, and then from there it was more fantasy films set in a kind of timeless period. So this is the last film that you can really date, and it is very much, as you say, of its era. A lot of positive things going on at that time, and a lot of maybe not so positive things. Um, This film in a microcosm, I think, is very interesting. I went to the Glasgow Film Theatre the other day and spoke to a lady there who was very excited about Earth vs. the Flying Saucer, because it shares a director with Rock Around the Clock, the Bill Haley musical, which I didn't know. I had to go back and uh, look that up, and I thought that was pretty interesting. So there's another iconic film which was made in the same year and directed by the same person. As you say, this was in a sort of wave of flying saucer hysteria, which was sweeping the States at the time. There was also the issue of one of the screenwriters for the film, Bernard Gordon, who had actually been blacklisted under the House of Un-American Activities Committee and had to submit his contributions under a pseudonym. So there's all these different things which really pin pin down 1956, all these different things going on in America, the kind of post-war era that also had a lot of uh, paranoia and fear of communism. I'm sure Ray didn't feel like this at the time. I'm sure he wasn't aware, or he was aware, but I'm sure he probably wasn't focused on all these things that were going on around the making of this film. But I I find it quite interesting to look at as a period piece. Well, it does. Yeah, exactly. It's a a period piece for us now, but at the time, of course, it it was contemporary cinema um, in the sense that flying saucers, the paranoia around what's in the sky. There was the issue of of communist infiltration from a direct assault, if you like, from Soviet Russia. There was the idea that there was creeping communism with most famously Dalton Trumbo, the screenwriter who who was blacklisted and magnificently came back and won Oscars under pseudonyms and worked for Stanley Kubrick on Spartacus. And there's that wonderful film with Brian Cranston that's out at the moment about his life and uh, his work. So it's interesting that the film itself does capture some of that paranoia. But of course, at the time, people were also concerned about um, flying saucers and the idea that we really are being visited. And I know that a lot of people that contact us and listen to our podcasts are people that are interested in that whole area and area 51 roswell you know has something happened you know an interesting thing steven spielberg once said was that when he was making close encounters of a third kind in the late 70s he had a real sense that there must be something out there 
Um, and there's lots of photography um, of flying saucers and lights in the sky. But Steven Spielberg was saying more recently that when he looks back now at some of his other work, particularly Close Encounters, that with the amount of uh, cameras we have in our pockets with mobile phones, the idea now that there are less sightings of UFOs than there were before when people were using you know, Kodak instamatic cameras and what have you is interesting. And, and in a sense, I think that's informed a view now that perhaps we aren't being visited as frequently, if at all. Um, so to some extent, as a government, you can create paranoia around flying saucers to help divert a population's views and opinions on other issues about homeland security. But this this is a terrific film. I mean, it's a great watch as well. It's um, it's something that Tim Burton refers back to in his Mars Attacks, which is based on the comic strip and the, and the bubblegum cards. Uh, but the idea of the spaceships that um, stainless steel look that they have, the way they rotate um, in opposite directions that from the from the base unit to the the circular um, inner. Um, it's just wonderful, you know. And at the time, like most science fiction cinema or all science fiction cinema, it was considered to be disposable, rather pulpish, and not to be taken seriously, and certainly not one for the critics. Now, of course, we look back and we see the great films we talked of from the era, like Day the Earth Stood Still, Thing from Another World, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, which was, although it wasn't a B picture technically, um, it had the budgets of a B picture, a support feature. So the studio, when they were making it, would have thought, you know, this is part of what we're going to be putting out this year. There are other studios putting out sci-fi. Here's our attempt wouldn't have been considered perhaps for re-release. And when we look back at it now, the film has a great legacy. It's been restored in its black and white form for for Blu-ray release. And very controversially, it's been colorized as well. What what can you tell us about that, Connor? Well, this is very interesting because Ray actually oversaw the colorization process in in 2008 uh, for this film, it came from beneath the sea and 20 million miles to earth. And this is something I think I think Ray was aware that a lot of people would find this controversial, but his seal of approval means so much when it comes to this kind of thing. There's a, there's a sense of authenticity. The colorized versions look fantastic. There's no there's no doubt in that. And on the on the DVD uh, re-release, the special edition, you can switch between the color and black and white version at the touch of a button, which is quite distracting. I spent the whole of the film doing that and sitting next to my wife going, look, look how good it looks when you turn it to colour, then you turn it back. But, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the colourised version is, is great and I understand people like things the way they remember them. And that's just human nature. But um, Ray himself, he wasn't somebody who was stuck in the 1930s. He liked to see this technology when it was used wisely. And there's a there's a short documentary on the, on the DVD special features with Ray in the studio as the people colorize the film and he's he's fascinated by it and, and incredibly impressed and it was something he was quite passionate about because he visualized the films in color it wasn't when he, when he was gestating these films in his imagination drawing the artwork he wasn't thinking of black and white films that was just circumstance that they ended up being filmed in black and white but he imagined all of these films being created in color and being viewed in color so it was good to see that 50 years later they actually were restored to how they were originally supposed to be seen no, exactly. And, you know, when people think, oh, no, it's an aesthetic choice, isn't it, to give it that 50s look? No, it wasn't. Um, shooting in three-strip Technicolor, incredibly expensive. It's um, 
if people know how films are developed or have ever put rushes into a laboratory, you know, to run a chemical bath for colour film is vastly more expensive than for black and white film. So that was the first reason. Um, so there was a time and a, a financial constraint. But also there was a technical one as well. When we think about how Ray would integrate live action with animation, he'd film the live action first, project it on a small screen behind the model, and then place a camera in front. So the camera would be in front, then the model in the centre ground, then the live action place of people running in the background. In black and white, there was a better variety of stocks available, a higher ISO rating, if you like. Um, so there was better speeds, finer grain, so there wouldn't be an awkward transition between some grainy background footage and a spaceship flying past. In black and white, you can, you can, as it were, merge the magic so that it seems more seamless. When Ray moved on to colour two films later for Seventh Voyager Sinbad, he was very concerned that the detail simply wasn't there on the colour stocks that he was using. And in some of the sequences, if you look closely, you can you can see sometimes where the rear projection and the uh, foreground models have a, a slightly different generation. They look slightly out of step with each other. So, you know, for all of those reasons, that's why Ray shot in black and white. So I said to him, you know, in, in recent years about this colour version, he said, yeah, he thinks it's terrific. He likes the idea, of course, that both are preserved. Sony Pictures have done a marvellous job with Ray's catalogue of work and have worked diligently in restoring the picture and sound. And as Connor was saying, both are available now. The great thing is it's we're not trying to do a, a colourised version of um, It's a Wonderful Life and, and junk the black and white version. You, you see that in one of the Gremlins films, does it? I think it's Gremlins 2, The New Batch. And a shout out to Joe Dante, who's a great Harryhausen fan and, and has has homages of him in all of his films. There's a colourised version of um, It's a Wonderful Life in Gremlins 2, and it's there as an attempt to suggest that, look, sometimes big business comes in with its clumsy feet and, and does something to a classic and effectively ruins it. I think in this case, Ray is saying, look, if I had the chance to shoot in colour, I would. Here, here are both versions. Watch them, you know, either side by side, as you were suggesting, Connor, um, it future protects them. Some broadcasters will not buy black and white films. So if it means Ray's film will not be shown in some territories, then better they're coloured and shown as colourised versions. And we're hoping, perhaps, aren't we, Connor, that we might have a public screening for the first time of the film later this year. Yes, hopefully. Um, we are, we're booked into the Cine Strange Festival in Brunswick in Germany. Hopefully it would be good. This would be the European premiere of the film being shown in colour and it would be good to have that this debate that we're having just now about colourisation whether it's the right thing or not I think it would be different if we were if we were going back and replacing some of Ray's creations with CGI CGI creatures or CGI flying saucers then there would be an uproar but as you say there's the option now to have both. What better seal of seal of approval can you have then from the man himself, Ray Harryhausen? And as he mentioned at the time, the dub the budget for these films would have doubled if they were to try and film them in colour. And we'll, as we'll probably speak about soon, the, the the you know the budget was pretty low in these films. They they did have to do a bit of improvising and thinking on their feet. Um so black and white was the only option at the time, but but now luckily enough in twenty sixteen we have both. 
Exactly. You know, and I had a, I had a, um, I won't say a disagreement, but I had a surprise with Ray when he was talking to me about restorations of his color films. And I agree entirely. If the scratches or dirt on present on the film and the print, that should be removed digitally. If the sound is in mono and you can do a 5.1 surround mix, great. You know, if you have the option to flick between. But this is the question that Ray was asked um, by Sony Pictures when they were restoring Jason and the Argonauts. During the harpy sequence, when Patrick Troughton is attacked by the harpies, um, for some frames, a few concurrent frames, you can see the strings that are holding the harpies. And Ray was asked, do you want those strings removed? And of course, Ray went to great lengths to paint them out and to position lighting so that those strings wouldn't be seen. Had I been asked, I would have said, oh no, that's part of the process, that's part of raised techniques please don't color those out ray actually said no i'd want those colored out so and the final word of course goes to ray harryhausen so when we talk about recoloring films and as you're saying connor we wouldn't replace any of ray's work with cgi um this is where i slightly diverged off as a geek i thought oh no i don't mind seeing strings there's some strings present on bubo the owling the blu-ray version of clash of the titans if that film gets a restoration as it deserves to get, I would hope that those strings are not digitally removed. I don't know what the fans feel about that. I think enhancing the image to make it a crystal sharp image and enhancing the sound so it surrounds you is as far as we should take these things. Um, and even doing a 3D version, I'm not against retrofitting for 3D, but um, I do wonder what the fans think about us removing strings or allowing you know film studios to remove strings because that's part of the the technique i would argue of what made ray's films magical well yeah i would agree too i think there's always that conflict between the perfectionist the creator if he, if he has a chance to go back and change something that maybe if he'd had his time again he, he wouldn't have had or he would have noticed and, and removed in the first place as fans now we, we, the way we remember them we like things to be available as we first saw them which is why you know when i watch star wars i always watch the first disc the original disc that hasn't got any cgi additions and has the original credits and all the all the mistakes and in inverted commas that you grew up watching but as long as both versions are available as long as the original isn't wiped off the face of the earth and never to be seen again then there's no real problem with with these updates as long as they're tasteful updates and uh, have the artist's approval now what you're about to hear is a short clip of ray himself discussing earth versus the flying saucers this clip is taken from the 2013 documentary ray harryhausen special effects titan Coincidentally, this documentary is finally receiving a Region 1 release, so fans in North America can purchase this film from Arrow Films or on Amazon from the 28th of June this year. I, I found it a challenge to try to make the metallic objects like a flying saucer have an intelligence inside, even though we never showed the actual people inside. And that came out about the time when there was a lot of flying saucer uh, clippings in the newspaper. I knocked over the Washington Monument long before Tim Burton did. <laughs> Never before has the screen reached such heights of excitement, breathtaking spectacle, hair-raising terror. See the saucer men's high-frequency disintegrators. See flying saucers travel thousands of miles in seconds. 
So going back to the, the film, the design of the saucers, what Ray created for Earth versus the Flying Saucers is really the archetypal spacecraft, um, as you said, very heavily influenced Tim Burton. And Ray, Ray being Ray did a lot of research into these films. He didn't just uh, lazily cobble together the design for these craft. He really went out and spoke to people who claimed to have seen these, these spacecraft and people who were very interested in the whole phenomena. He spoke with... Uh, George Adamski, who authored the non-fiction book Flying Saucers Have Landed, and the film itself was based upon a book named Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Donald Kehoe. So Charles Sear bought the rights to that book, and that provided the basis for the script. And it's it's much like Ray, um, how he described on Mighty Joe Young, where he started to eat a lot of raw vegetables. He took up the gorilla diet to get himself in the in the frame of mind for, for his character. It's interesting that he did the same for the flying saucers. He really just immersed himself in it and embodied this flying saucer phenomena of the mid-50s. Yeah, he did. I mean, as you say, with research, he always got into whether it was a creature or something from the imagination. He would try and look at all different versions. Um, I think if Ray had more time and more money, he might like to have done something with the the aliens that were inside because they had a rather, um, what's a kind way of saying this, they had a rather lost in space feel um, about them. They were men in suits. They had a I suppose they felt like a distant relation of Gort from the day the Earth stood still. So they had a, a feeling of, of liquid metal. But I think Gort had achieved that much more successfully. But uh, of course, Fox gave um, Robert Wise a, a couple of wheelbarrows full of money to, to make that work. Um, but uh, I think the, the, the different people have favourite sequences. But I think it's all of the it's the boys' toys element of this film, the destruction of Washington, which at the time was probably quite controversial. When it happened in Independence Day, Roland Emmerich's film from 1996, and there's a sequel on its way this year for Independence Day, blowing up the White House as Air Force One helicopter takes off. Marine One, it's called, isn't it? And it all explodes. And they did that in a traditional way with uh, um, over-cranking a, a camera whilst they blew up a, a full-size model. That is quite a defining moment in that film. And when the Capitol building is destroyed in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. I think that's one of those pivotal, iconic moments of sci-fi cinema, not just that movie. You're right, and also the Washington Monument too. It was incredibly thrilling to watch um, the, the scenes which have been most heavily referenced. And of course, I'm, go I'm just going to say this because I was going to leave it to the end, but Mars Attacks, the Tim Burton film, which borrowed so heavily from Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And uh, that's a film that means a lot to me because that's the first film I ever snuck in to see at the cinema. I was 10 and it was a 12, which I thought was a big deal at the time. Ooh. Probably not such a big deal looking back, but uh, I, was, I was convinced I was going to get caught. I, I loved Mars Attacks. I went back to school, wrote a report on it, and I thought it was fantastic. So 10 years later, I finally saw Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and I was like, of course, this is it. This is the film. Uh, and with the, the destruction of the Washington Monument, Tim Burton does the same thing, where he has the saucers propping the monument up after it falls to chase some Boy Scouts around. And I thought that was quite funny to see the direct... Uh, homage to Ray Harryhausen there. Of course, Ray was quick to remind Tim Burton that he was the first to to destroy the Washington Monument. Um, on the interview on the uh, on the special edition of the DVD, uh, Tim Burton. I always thought Tim Burton is quite a cool director, but when he's with Ray, he's 
almost fallen off a seat with excitement, especially when the, the flying saucers come out and they're able to hold them. So many happy memories of watching that film growing up and he's like a kid in a sweet shop. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Tim Burson and I'm a big fan of Mars Attacks. I was only sorry that when the film came out the critics didn't embrace it. Um it's an enormously expensive movie from Warner Brothers with fantastic soundtrack from Danny Elfman. Um, everything about that film is fantastic. The casting, you've got Jack Nicholson, you've got um, Pierce Brosnan. I love that film. Um, and it's only a shame that it wasn't received as well as it should have been at the time. Now, of course, like a lot of films that didn't do well, like Baron Munchausen and so on, we've had a chance to reflect. And if you pick up you know, a typical film guide now, I think it's much kinder to Mars Attacks. And at the time it just said, oh, it's just stolen from the Ray Harryhausen playbook. What else is it? It's it's overstuffed. It's, it's, it's too expensive. They should have done it on a lower budget. But now I look back at it and I think it is, as you say, it's a respectful homage to Ray's work. And Tim Burton is one of those great filmmakers working today who was able to get an, an enormous budget because Ray and Charles Schneer w- would have been laughed out of the front office of Sony Pictures, or Columbia Pictures, rather, if it's called at the time, if they'd asked for an equivalent budget, which would have been something in the region of, I'm guessing, six, maybe seven million dollars, had they asked for that then, um, they would have been laughed out of the place. Earth versus the Flying Saucers would have been shot for somewhere around the region of 350000 to $450,000, um, very much in line with other films of the time. So, you know... It's great that Mars Attacks is there and it's great that people do bring Ray's work back in a way, even if commercially not successful in that form. It it meant that stop motion is alive and Tim Burton's continued to make stop motion films, which is um, which is very heartening. No, Tim Burton's fantastic. And I actually, it's funny that you say that. I went and uh, after watching Mars Attacks and enjoying it so much, I went and read all the movie magazines I could. And I was disappointed to see the, the critics slating this film that I'd enjoyed so much. So I learned a valuable lesson about never listening to film critics. And that's uh, something I've held ever since. Uh, most of the things I like, film critics or music critics or whatever, don't like it. So I'm quite happy with that. I'm glad I learned that at the age of 10. So on to some of the special effects now. Um, We were talking about the destruction of Washington at the end of the film. There's something about the effects in this film that uh, are quite atypical for for race films. Firstly, the saucers are inanimate objects. Now, how do you inject personality into uh, these metal discs which were created by his father? Uh, I think Ray did a commendable job there. Yeah, I mean, Ray's father was an engineer, so he helped him get that design right. And we have some of them in the foundation, don't we, Connor? So they're in different sizes, um, but they're all incredibly detailed, even the smaller ones. And Ray would hang them in a marionette style. He created his own sort of gimbal system to hang them up. And, of course, they had to not wobble between shots because it's frame at a time. And although the spaceships are hung from invisible wires that he had painted out or lit out... When something is destroyed that contains lots of debris, um, like the uh, whether it's the Washington Monument or the Capitol Building, all of the bricks had to be animated a frame at a time. So as they fall, they're suspended on wires too. So it's really an incredible task to bring everything together on wires, making sure that none of the pieces are out of step each frame of the time, and making sure you don't wobble any of them uh, during the sequence. So... 
it really is a um it, it almost sounds like a terrifying quiz show to win a million pounds you know how can you achieve the impossible doing this on wires and yet ray did this and you know the film works as well today if not better today than it did at the time because it's seen off its competition you know it stands as one of the foremost films of that era now, when I was watching those scenes, I, re- I read Ray's book, An Animated Life, and then I went back to watch Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. I was watching those scenes of destruction again, and I thought, I must have read that wrong. There's no way that he animated each and every brick one by one, cascading down as the saucer crashed into the building. But, in fact, he did, and uh, that that's, that must have been, you know, several days' worth of work just animating painstakingly. He describes the operation as torturous in his book, and I couldn't quite understand that. But that just shows the, the level of dedication that Ray put into his films. And as as I said earlier, this, if you didn't know who Ray Harryhausen was, you wouldn't really attribute that to stop motion. But he was finding new ways of, of working his techniques and working his craft into, into movies that perhaps aren't your traditional stop motion fair you know the these these spaceships and these buildings uh, are just fantastically rendered well if you think about somebody else at the time who was doing something very similar george powell who ray had worked with on puppetoons he was making his own dramatic sort of version war of the worlds and that went for an entirely different technique it was in 1953 so it was two or three years before ray's film but it was in color um, they decided to do it in the Derek Meddings way, shall we call it, where you have live action props, large ones, large spaceships on strings in a very Thunderbirds sort of environment with with uh, quarter-sized sets of, of, of streets and buildings and so on. And you run the film fast through the camera so that when you play it back, everything shows in a much slower speed. But effectively, things were done as marionettes and done in real time. That film still holds up remarkably well as well, but there's very little control amongst the spaceships as they fly. They sort of fly from left to right, up and down, and there's an enormous amount of strings. You know, Ray's films, you would rarely see strings. You'd have to look very closely and perhaps do a freeze frame. In um, in War of the Worlds, George Powell's one, it's like someone's trying to grate cheese with the amount of strings they have hanging around. So it's... It's still an impressive film and I love it dearly, but it's interesting how two very similar filmmakers, both of whom have worked in the stop motion environment, would take two very different techniques to achieve the same effect. Where Ray's film, I think, is successful is that stop motion does lend itself to that rather mechanical look and feel. You know, we think about Talos in Jason and the Argonauts and Phil Tippett's brilliant work in The Empire Strikes Back with the Asat Walkers, the Snow Walkers. Um, when George Lucas came to to um, remaster and remodel all of those environments, the animation of Phil Tippett was left completely untouched, and rightly so. It's spectacularly effective today as it was at the time. And stop motion, I think, lends itself nicely to mechanical creatures and, and spaceships. And of course, Phil Tippett did the same with Robocop. Um, so when we look back at Ray's saucers flying around, you get that sense that there's a real engine firing in those saucers. So when they crash into the buildings, there's that sense of an atomic strike. Whereas with War of the Worlds for George Powell, you get the sense that, you know, you'd only have to clap your hands and perhaps one of the strings might break and the saucer hits the ground. 
audiences at the time did see the strings. Audiences at the time commented on the strings, as did critics. The film rightly picked up an Oscar for Best Special Effects because it was quite an achievement. But really, there were other techniques available at the time that George Powell could have used that Ray was using to bring an audience a more realistic, I would say, and a more vibrant alien attack. Yeah, the, the smoothness of the way that the saucers travel in, in formation. The hidden techniques as well, the things that Ray does, such as uh, saucers disappearing behind buildings as they fly by. And, you know, th- this all required a lot of work, a lot of a lot of editing. Um, and it's so effective that you don't notice it, which is the whole point. Uh, but the, the way that the, the saucers move through the sky, very minimalistic, very... Uh, unsettling and that that's the smoothness it doesn't look like it's dangling from a string we haven't even mentioned plan nine from outer space which had probably the greatest flying saucers of all a hubcap dangling from a piece of string in front of the camera those are those are something else They're, those are on the the opposite end of the scale from ray harryhausen's flying saucers but you know ray's one was done on a tight budget you know when you look back at some of the um what's called stock footage in the opening of the film you see lots of uh, military build-up a lot of that is news footage. Some of it's not even 35mm, some of it's 16mm blown up. Not ideal, not what Ray wanted to do, but it was, again, it was a, a budgetary constraint. So he had to effectively find stock footage of military aircraft. And there was the military aircraft accident that he used um, from the Second World War, um, Viking rocket launches. These are the sorts of tools that are available to filmmakers who are working on a budget. You can't afford to send the crew out to a naval base or a military base to shoot rockets. And often the Ministry of Defence isn't keen to have you sniffing around anyway. So there may well have been um, footage they could have used rights-free within the Columbia um, Library. But it was a a standard you know, trick, if you like, for low-budget filmmakers. Use stock footage. So whether it's a village burning or, or floods... The, uh, the flood sequence from Superman the movie has been used in many a film. So that kind of balance between Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is which is really put together with bits of sellotape, and then the high-end big studio War of the Worlds, Ray's film sort of sits comfortably, I think, between them both. And in my eyes, is, is, um, is superior to both. And it's funny that uh, you mentioned stock footage in this film because these the saucers became like the the ones that you went to if you wanted stock footage of flying saucers they were used numerous times in years to come in different films as a as a go to either someone's got them on a TV in the background or th- those are the flying saucers if you want a picture of some flying saucers from the 1950s there there you go um but you mentioned that in terms of budget and uh, the fact that military establishments didn't really like people sniffing around their buildings um i thought it was amusing to note that the base for operation skyhook uh, it was actually all shot at a sewage treatment plant. And this is where Ray got the sound effects for the whooshing noise of the flying saucers because it's an, actually an, a recording of this wastewater flying through hundreds of pipes at once and it gives the distinctive rushing noise of the uh, of the flying saucers going by. I thought that that was quite a an il- illustrative story as to the low-budget nature of the film and also of Ray's inventiveness. Yeah, I think this is one of the areas that perhaps isn't often mentioned about Ray's film, sound design. You know, sound design and music were areas that Ray was very involved with. Finding the right composer is as important as finding the right director. And sound design 
ever since Star Wars has become a sort of a, a department in itself. But often for the editors working on these pictures who are not used to maybe doing footsteps in the rain and, and foleying in sounds, that means watching the screen and, and creating what's needed with, uh, with different props, creating things of another world hadn't really been achieved successfully until 1933's King Kong. And then there was some really innovative work done. When we think of Star Wars, we think of Ben Burst and what he did with sound effects. But Ray's films are very innovative too. They, they used um, similar techniques and Ray was very active in that. He worked closely with the editors to make sure that things sounded or had weight. As you're saying, the, the source for the... Um, for the power of the engines for the the sources but even explosions you want to use something that sounds like a building really is collapsing well how do you do that without collapsing a building um so all of these are part of the tapestry of what makes it more realistic for viewers and you know the fact that we're talking about it here now 60 years later the 60th anniversary and the film is thriving other films that came out in uh, in 1956 that had bigger budgets bigger campaigns from the studios and, dare I say it, had won some Academy Awards, are not talked about. And that list is is, is substantial and long. Um, so it's really a testament to Ray's longevity and what he achieved on very little that we're talking about it six years later. And I do suspect when we're very old men, Connor, we'd be give, talking about the 100th anniversary. <laughs> God, what a thought! That's that's quite, that's quite a thought. But you're right because it's actually been something since I, since I've started working for the foundation. It's it's one of the first things people ask about when we're talking about potential exhibitions or just talking about what's held in the collection. It's one of the first p- things people ask is, "Oh, do you still have the flying saucers, or how are the flying saucers now?" And they actually, you know, they haven't changed a bit out of everything in the collection. They're probably the most well preserved items because they're made of metal you know they they they're they're no different they're they're intentionally you know they were given a kind of matte effect to stop them looking too shiny on the film and and they look wonderful so we've got the we've got several flying saucers of various sizes we've still got the ray gun as well the little little gun that comes out and, and shoots the death ray at buildings uh, that's that's still in the collection too and the little entrance the landing the little landing tube that comes out from beneath the large saucer uh, where the aliens come out. You know, we've, we've still got all these items from the film. So I think it's uh, I think it's quite exciting that people still ask for these things. And uh, you could see, as I said, in, in the footage of Tim Burton chatting with Ray, when he picks up the original metal flying saucer, he's like a he's like a 10-year-old kid again. He's just so excited by it. And I think that's the feeling that these films give you uh, even 60 years on, the, the electricity never disappears. You're right. And the irony of it, of course, is that because they're they're made of, of steel and aluminium, they'll, they'll probably outlive um, most of the rest of the collection, some of which is deteriorating at a frightening rate. Uh, and we do have um, exhibitions, Connor, don't we? Have they, you regularly have people asking you, can they have them on loan for major exhibitions? Yeah, that happens a lot. And as I said, it's Often it's the flying saucers is one of the things. Oh, is there any chance that if we were going to like, if we we're going to have this on exhibition, could we make sure we have the the flying saucers? Or have you, have you got pictures of the flying saucers? They they will be going on display soon. We'll, we will make some announcements on our on our social media platforms as always on our, our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Um, we are we have a few exciting exhibitions and other events in the pipeline uh, ready to be announced very soon, and we'll be sure to tell you all 
either on our on our Facebook account or through through our next podcast. But you can catch us at uh, twitter.com slash Ray underscore Harryhausen or on Facebook at the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. And we, we do have some exciting updates coming soon, so please stay tuned. That's great. Well, thanks very much, Connor, for um, for finding out everything and delving into the archives for this very special anniversary edition of Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. We hope you all out there are going to have another look at the film and, and do contact us about it. Even though we've, we've done this retrospective now, we're happy to take questions on it and uh, we'll have more for you next month. Wonderful. Thanks for listening and thanks for joining me, John. Goodbye. Bye now. Flying saucers have invaded our planet. Washington, London, Paris, Moscow are key targets. The whole world is under attack. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity. Number SC001419, 2016. We are the survivors of a disintegrated solar system. At this moment, the remainder of our fleet is circling your globe. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. They set up an electronic screen. The artillery doesn't penetrate. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. What do you want with me? Arrange for your world leaders to confer with us in the city of Washington. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com, where you can also find our Facebook and Twitter links.